I've always appreciated your great energy and, and your total commitment to health and wellness and your patients and our world. And that's what this is all about. You've got to be able to have the vitality, the energy, the wherewithal, and the fitness to do whatever you want to do. Hello, health enthusiasts, fitness buffs, and truth seekers. I'm Dr. Chris Frickman. Welcome to Vibrant Potential, where I interview the top minds in all areas of health and fitness so you can supercharge your performance and accelerate your results, all while boosting your satisfaction, peace, and happiness in life. Because what good are results if you're stuck in stress mode? And if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Many of my interviews allow you a backstage pass as I pick the brains of cutting-edge scientists, best-selling authors, and the leading minds in health today. In today's episode, I interview my good friend, Dr. Robert Rakowski, or as some know him, Dr. Bob. Today, he shares functional medicine secrets for achieving your vibrant potential. And if you don't know... Dr. Bob holds diplomates in applied kinesiology and nutrition. He's a chiropractor, a certified clinical nutritionist, a certified biological terrain instructor, and the clinic director of the Natural Medicine Center in Houston, Texas. In addition to running a busy practice, Dr. Bob has lectured internationally for over 23 years on various topics in natural and lifestyle medicine. That's where I first learned about him when I was in chiropractic school over, geez, getting close to 15 years ago, I guess. I actually went through his applied kinesiology 100-hour program when I was in my first year of chiropractic school. So he is uh, the first doc that I learned AK from. Dr. Bob's appeared on numerous television programs and international radio talk shows. He is a recognized expert in functional endocrinology and in-office diagnostic procedures to assess nutritional status. His clinical expertise ranges from treating elite professional athletes, such as boxing greats Evander Holyfield and Reggie Sweet Johnson, NFL greats like LaCharles Bentley and Wendy Fletcher, and tons of others, to critically ill patients with a variety of cancer and autoimmune diseases. Want to know how you can reach your vibrant potential? Today, Dr. Bob shares the secrets to success for his clients that are achieving the highest pinnacles in sports and business, as well as those that sadly are on their last leg until Dr. Bob turns them around. Now you can use these health-boosting tactics as well, and you'll be shocked at how simple some of these tips are. So, without further ado, Dr. Bob Rakowski. Welcome to Vibrant Potential. We provide you with everything you need to know to overcome stress, fatigue, and chronic health challenges, as well as optimizing your performance in fitness, relationship, and business. We use integrative health solutions and functional medicine strategies, including brain-based approaches, inspired fitness tips, emotional intelligence coaching, and spiritual growth techniques, so you can live the life you want, connect deeply with others, and fulfill your vibrant potential. Your host is functional medicine expert, genetic biohacker, and triathlon coach, Dr. Chris Frickman.
today's guest is Dr. Robert Rakowski. He's a chiropractor, kinesiologist, certified clinical nutritionist. He's also a certified biological training instructor and the clinic director of the Natural Medicine Center in Houston, Texas. In addition to running a busy practice, Dr. Rakowski, or Dr. Bob, has lectured internationally for over 23 years on various topics in natural and lifestyle medicine. He has appeared on numerous television programs and international radio talk shows. He is a recognized expert in functional endocrinology and in-office diagnostic procedures to assess nutritional status. His clinical experience ranges from treating elite professional athletes to critically ill patients with a variety of cancers and autoimmune diseases. On a personal note, I am a friend and he's been a mentor of mine since I really first started my chiropractic journey. Dr. Bob, I want to say thank you so much for doing this talk. I'm excited for the value that, that we're going to bring to the listeners today. As am I. Thank you so much for having me as your guest. I know we've got a lot of good information to share, so let's just dive right in and do that. All right, great. Well, so here's the first one. As most of the listeners know, you and I are both chiropractors. Most people that have ever been to a chiropractor know that we're going to be body workers. We're going to probably be doing adjustments. And you are one of the great ones, Dr. Bob. You taught me some of what I know with, with adjusting, and, and I've seen you adjust multiple people up on stage in front of large audiences because you are a lecturer and you're a teacher of chiropractors. And so you have very dynamic adjustments. So then my question is, is why nutrition? <laughs> There's a lot of different reasons for that, but if you look at the Journal of the American Medical Association last year, they published a number of studies on the actual causes of death, what really kills people. So we know that death certificates tend to say heart disease and cancer and stroke and diabetes and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and things like that. Just most recently, uh, poor diet has now leaped to the number one actual cause of death, and they suggest that it kills about 670,000 people a year. The Journal of the American Medical Association has been doing this since about 1990, every decade, and it does take a handful of years to, to put the data together. But in 1990, they actually said that cigarette smoking was the number one cause of death, followed by poor diet, lack of exercise. The same thing was uh, in the same order in uh, 2000, but this last study, which they say is data that represents 2010, has poor diet as the number one killer. And I have plenty of people that will come into me, and there's no obvious trauma, but they just have pain all over. And what I tend to tell people is in the absence of trauma, bodies break down on the inside before they break down on mm. the outside. So when people have aches and pains that they just you know, have no idea where it came from. You know, you, you just don't wake up with severe shoulder pain or neck pain or back pain. Something's going wrong right. on the inside, and, and that's how we try to address it from the inside out. Nice. A follow-up question, I guess, would be as far as nutrition goes, the two kind of big things that I think of when I think of nutrition are diet, so what are we eating, what's the food that we're eating, and then I think of supplements. You know, I obviously have a, I think you know what, what my thought process is behind this, but uh, for the listeners, are supplements really necessary? Well, again, I'll, I'll go right to the medical literature, and that's the advantage I have of teaching doctors all over the world. You know, your, your opinion certainly counts for something, but people really want published facts. And the published fact is uh, one of the journal's advances in therapy took two groups of people, age-matched, health-matched, and measured the tissue levels of nutrients in their system. They then put them on an excellent diet, all-organic, macronutrient balance, the right amount of calories, or needed to sustain themselves and, and be healthy. 
And at the end of three months, they went ahead and, and looked again, did the tissue levels of nutrients change? And on a perfect diet, they didn't. Now, they took a comparable group, gave them diet and supplementation, and that was the group that had actual benefit in their tissue levels. So what they said very simply is food is too weak to replete depleted cells and bodies. Therefore, supplementation is advisable for everybody. And that is the language that they used. So one of the things that I like to tell my, my doctors and my patients is that there's only about 7% of American farmland that's considered prime. The U.S. Department of Agriculture keeps statistics on that. So there's a 93% probability that our plants are grown in deficient soil. Uh, I like to tell people that there's about 30 elements required to make healthy plants, animals, and humans, but the most common fertilizer out there is called NPK, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, so it only puts three elements back in. So my very simple way of explaining this is if you have a bank account, it really doesn't matter what your balance starts at. If for every 30 you take out, you only put three back in, you're going to run into some problems. Some of the seed in this country, the, the genetically modified seed, is actually banned in Europe. They now have animal studies that show that if animals eat a lifetime of genetically modified food, they all die earlier. 80% of the animals die from cancer. So uh, well, countries that have exercised caution you know, are, are doing better in terms of health than we are. Then there's herbicides, insecticides, fungicides, and finally food processing. And, and you come to realize that our food sources are mostly terrible. So good quality supplementation will first do no harm, but in, in many cases will bring people to the health that they want and deserve. Wow, that's awesome. I, I love how you always have uh, all the research ready to tip of your brain. That's awesome. So clearly nutritional supplements are important, and they, they can be uh, used very well for our health. Um, just to go back to diet really quick, what do you recommend as far as diet? I mean, is there is there an optimal diet for, for everyone? It, does everybody uh, have an individualized diet that comes into your office? Um, is organic food important, or is that just kind of a sham? Hint, it's not. <laughs> yeah, a lot, lot, lot of questions there. The organic one, in, in my opinion, is very easy. No, that's, that's not a sham. That's really the way it should be. I don't like anything genetically modified. I like to quote Jack LaLanne, who, by the way, was a chiropractor and a fitness guru. He said, if God made it, it's okay. If man made it, don't touch it. Uh, there's a number of people that say if it wasn't around 200 years ago, we, we probably don't want to eat it today. And then when you start looking at maybe some of the, the more specific foods, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard is eat what your ancestors ate. So you know, I, was, I was from, my ancestors are, are from Europe, from Poland specifically. So you want to find what their type of diet was, and that would be a lot of root vegetables and, and some simple starches and very low in grain and high-quality meats. You know, back then, the meats didn't have antibiotics, and you know, the animals weren't injected with hormones, and um, they ate a natural diet, not like the, the corn-fed beef that we have today. So uh, you not only want to eat healthy food, but when you start talking about meats, you want to know what your, what your animals are eating as well, and it should be a natural diet for them. So I guess the best thing I can say is if God made it, it's okay. If man made it, don't touch it. And in terms of the food choices, eat what your ancestors ate. Okay, excellent. So we need to pay attention to what our, our animals are eating, and we need to pay attention to what our plants are eating. So like going back to the NPK fertilizers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You, you mentioned your ancestors. That makes me think of a couple of uh, – there's so many diets out there, Dr. Bob. The paleo diet, of course, is – you know, that gained huge popularity recently. 
and that's based off of what our ancestors ate. It also makes you think of, I believe his name was uh, Dr. Peter Deyamo, wrote the book uh, Eat Right for Your Type. That was popular for a little bit. Uh, I think it was like late 90s when it was popular. Again, just to hone in, are, is there like a certain like subset? Like is there, like do you really subscribe to like paleo or ketogenic or Mediterranean diet or eat right for your type or anything like that? Well, really, all of those are going to have a place. It really depends on how the person, you know, comes into you. So you mentioned ketogenic, and the paleo diet is somewhat ketogenic. It's a very low-starch diet. Um, but when someone has a blood sugar problem, I really like a ketogenic diet. My, my simple catchphrase to describe that diet is leans, greens, nuts, and seeds. When you start talking about uh, Peter Diodamo's Eat Right for Your Type, you know, that's, that book was written a few decades ago, and I read it, and I put a lot of patience on it. And I found there were some pearls in there. You know, he talks about people being reacted to certain foods based on blood type and, and little proteins within the food called lectins that could trigger reactions. But I found it most effective for O's, least effective for A's, and in between for A, B's, and B's. Now, one of the things I like about that diet is it gives you guidelines, but you also have to listen to what your body's telling you. Now, if we start getting to supplementation, there's some really nice enzyme products out there right now. Um, there's a lot of press on, for instance, gluten, gluten being terrible for a lot of people. And it is for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. Some people will have the extreme reaction to gluten, which is celiac disease. Other people will have sensitivity to gluten where it will alter their brain blood flow. But what gluten appears to do is actually feed the bad bugs in the gut, and we have more bugs in our gut than in cells in our body. And those bugs can create toxins that will actually poison our system. So um, there's actually enzyme products that can digest the proteins of gluten down into individual amino acids, and that can make it a food that can become suddenly much more tolerable. Now, I don't recommend that people put foods that are bad for their body uh, in their body, but there are certain strategies that they can take that can minimize the harm, and that can be things like enzymes. Okay, awesome. Are you talking about just a general digestive enzyme? Or are you talking about serratiopeptidases or what kind of? Yeah, so the product is from a company called Deerfield Enzymes. It's distributed to a company called Numetica, and the, na the brand name of the product is called Glutenza. Very, very powerful set of proteolytic enzymes that are proven to just really digest protein. Some of the leading gluten researchers in the world uh, have, have endorsed it, and it's, uh, you know, the little catchphrase below it is the gluten pulverizing formula. But beyond huh. it, just really, really destroying gluten and breaking that down into individual, individual amino acids, they know it does it for, for most foods as well. So then they actually renamed the product in another package called Allergenza. So if people have a reactive food, that's an enzyme product that can, can go a long way to help them reduce the reaction. So I want to talk a little bit about toxicity before before we get too far astray, and I, I forget to bring it up. I want to start with just a, a small lead-in here. I remember the first time I was in a seminar with you, it was uh, it was hosted by our good friends at Nutrition Dynamics. You were talking about some crazy thing that I had never heard, like cytochrome P450 pathways or something. You know, I mean, I knew nothing about nutrition. I was uh, first trimester in chiropractic school. It was the first of many seminars that I ended up enjoying. But at the time, they were sampling a supplement to help support liver detoxification pathways. 
and they were just uh, kind of giving this out and letting uh, doctors, you know, sample this, see how it tastes, see how they feel on it, stuff like that. And I, I looked around and I thought, this seems bizarre, you know. And the reason I'm telling this story is because sometimes I like to remember what it was like before I knew all the things I know now. Because, of course, after you do so much research into nutrition and health and stuff, you have a different way of looking at things. But um, I remember looking around and just thinking, like, wow, everybody's drinking this stuff, drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. It kind of seemed like to me. And I just thought, this implies that, like, if everybody's drinking this, this detox formula, it implies that everybody must be toxic. And I just thought that seemed really weird. And now I know a little bit more, but I'm curious, would you say that everybody's toxic? Well, the research certainly points that out. You know, um, there's actually 87,000 registered toxic chemicals in the environment, which is a phenomenal amount. Most of these have never really been tested for human safety and certainly not in the combinations that we look. So in 1971, the Environmental Protection Agency started what they call the Human Toxin Inventory. And they started looking at fat samples in both surgical patients and cadavers. Uh, the reason they looked at fat samples because most of these toxins in our environment are fat-soluble. Uh, by the way, there's plenty of data actually suggesting that it's these toxins that we're exposed to that have a big part in this rampant obesity epidemic. The body actually stores mm. the toxins in fat as a way of protecting itself uh, from some of the harmful effects. But the EPA actually estimates that every single person walking around has about 700 toxins in their system. Uh, now, Columbia University did an interesting study uh, on air quality, and they had, of all, of all study people to, to sample, they had pregnant women walk around with this specialized, essentially, air sampler or artificial lung on a backpack on them, and then looked at the air quality that was out there, and they found out every single one of these women, every single day, was breathing in toxins uh, in the air where, where, wherever they were living. Now, the Environmental Working Group also followed that up by doing a uh, study on umbilical cord blood. They looked at cord blood of babies, and literally every single baby they looked at throughout the country had over 200 toxins in their system uh, before they took their first breath. Now, that 200 is probably a dramatic understatement because of the 87,000 chemicals that are out there, we can only test for about 7%. So that number may have been more realistically somewhere in the thousands. And a lot of people are linking these toxins to the super high incidence of cancer, autism, birth defects, infertility, obesity. So there is no doubt that toxicity is a real health concern. Wow. Yeah, for everybody. You're pointing to exogenous toxins or toxins that we're breathing in or we're eating or we're drinking somehow they're made outside of our body and then we're getting them into our body and then we have to do something with them. Like you said, either store them in our fat or our adipose tissue or we have to detox them out somehow through our liver, their kidneys, their skin, our lungs. But there's another kind of toxin and it's endogenous toxins. You are, in, in my mind, you're like the master of quotes and, and you're so well read both on literature and some of the other more, more lay books about health and stuff. I don't have an encyclopedic memory like you do, but uh, you, so you'll probably remember who said this, but you quoted someone as saying estrogens, whether we make it or whether we take it, we, we need to detox it. Does that ring the bell for you? 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, that was uh, a gentleman named Joe Collins, and he wrote the book called What's Your Menopause Type? But I actually tweak his phrase because, yeah, he does say whether we make them, whether we take them, we need to get rid of them every day. The way I modify that quote is whether we make them, whether we take them, whether we are knowingly or unknowingly intoxicated by them, whether we're a man, whether we're a woman, we need to get rid of them every day in a healthy way because our liver actually has 11 different enzymes that start the process of estrogen clearance. And there are some pathways that create a healthier estrogen product and some that are actually pretty toxic. So a little more than a decade ago, I started doing some genetic research. And I have a couple filing cabinets full of data on on genetic tests. And one of the things that we looked at is how people detoxify their estrogens. And I'd also had... uh, you know, a, a number of patients that had either you know, breast cancer or prostate cancer, and every single one of them had a limitation in their healthy estrogen pathways and an overexpression of their more toxic estrogen pathways. And mm-hmm. you know, there was probably a time way back when where that wasn't as big a deal. So, for instance, in 1940, a woman's lifetime risk of breast cancer was one in 22. Today, it's one in eight. And and so the genes haven't changed, but what has changed is the burden and all of these toxic estrogens, estrogens in plastics, estrogens in pesticides, estrogens injected in animals. And that's what's causing such a, a profound problem. And in fact, uh, not just in adults, but we're seeing that girls are developing much, much, much earlier. And that increases cancer risk as well as other health risks. Yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, as you as you well know, Dr. Bob, um, this is a, something that hits close to home for me uh, because I have three daughters and because my girlfriend had, uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer last year. And, uh, you know, she is someone who, um, she's actually a chiropractor, a functional medicine doctor herself. She lived a super healthy, super clean life. And uh, in the end, we've, we've ended up, We've done a lot of testing over the last year, and, and including genetic testing. And, and in the end, um, her her genes did kind of play against her in that role. But just to rewind just a little bit, just for the listeners, I, I don't know if that seemed like a big jump. We were talking about toxins, and then I and then I kind of went to estrogen. Can you explain how, Dr. Bob? Can you explain how estrogen? Of course, is something that we we all need to use. It's a hormone. Uh, we we think of it as in women, but it's also in men. Can you explain how it's it's important in our body? We use it in our body, but then also we need to just we need to get rid of it. So it is it does end up being a toxin if we're not getting rid of it. Sure, and and that's even ancient wisdom about anything. They like to say everything's a toxin; it's just a matter of dose. And as I begin to tell people of, about toxicity in general, I let them know that it takes me only a few minutes to show you how toxic water is. And my joke on that is, you can dive to the bottom of the nearest swimming pool, drink water for five minutes, and you'll find out how toxic water is. But anything that builds up in a super high level in your system can become toxic. And and so estrogens are very, very powerful molecules. They work at very, very low concentrations. And what happens is we get exposed to estrogens that are, you know, not even normal estrogens. They they have a technical term called xenoestrogens. Xeno is actually spelled with an X and it means foreign estrogens. But they can bind to the same types of receptors. And the body, for some reason or other, has a harder time clearing these, probably because they're not natural molecules. So suddenly we have a much stronger, longer-lasting estrogenic effect 
part of what estrogen does, if you think about secondary sexual characteristics, is it promotes the growth of tissue. Well, you want tissue to grow to a certain degree, but not beyond that. And abnormal growth of cells, of course, is one of the things that happens with cancer. So the Journal of the National Cancer Institute published these words, very simply, a woman's lifetime risk of breast cancer is directly related to estrogen exposure. So when they're exposed to estrogens and plastics, pesticides as well as their own bodies, they start menstruating earlier, a lot more menstrual cycles, fewer pregnancies, less breastfeeding, all that thing goes on to a lot of exposure. Cells grow more than they should, and some of them become cancerous. So that was kind of a long way around of answering it, but really it's just failure of clearing what belongs there and what doesn't belong there. Things stick around longer. They have a, a longer acting uh, action on the tissue, and ultimately that creates a problem. And it is both in men and women. And some of the most vulnerable tissue in males uh, is certainly the prostate tissue, and there's this whole new concept, and, and I hope I don't offend your, your listeners with it, but of man boobs. We, we, we men also have mammary glands, but they shouldn't grow. But yet you'll see a lot of guys that have very significant challenges with essentially breast tissue. Right. Yeah, and it's just on the rise. Thanks, Dr. Bob. I appreciate that. You're, you're very good at distilling complex ideas down into simple systems. Kind of along those lines of, of your complex ideas into simple systems, can you tell me a little bit about your Magnificent Seven? Sure. That really boils down to lifestyle, but I always tell people that in order to have health, you have to earn health, and that starts with eating right, drinking right, thinking right, moving right, sleeping right, pooping right, and talking right. And, and a lot of that, seminars where we, can, <laughs> we can take those down and one by one and, and make a whole day seminar out of it, but it's really just the good basics of health. Yeah, yeah, it's great, it's great. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, I mean, I, al I always attribute uh, the stuff I've learned to you. Uh, I always give credit where credit is due. Uh, but I've, ta I've talked to a lot of patients, and I've talked about that, and every time I get to poop right, they're always, you know, ah, I always kind of laugh about it, right? But it is, it's, it's important. I mean, it's one of the ways that we're detoxing. And, and I think, uh, you know, if we're not pooping right, then that is a huge sign of, dysfunction in the body. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I was amazed. I lectured at NASA, literally to a group of rocket scientists, and one of them literally looked at me and says, I know this will sound like an odd question, but how exactly do you poop right? And, and there's not enough education on that, but literally from the time you eat something, you know, it should be in your mouth, you know, for a longer period of time than it typically is. We, we would like people to chew their food more. And they even have feeding studies where when people chew their food more, they actually eat less. So, you know, it could be in your in your mouth anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute. It travels down your esophagus uh, over the course of, of another minute or two. It should be in your stomach for a handful of hours and then small intestine to extract all the nutrients. And then ultimately it goes through about six feet of large intestine and out. But that entire cycle, that whole process should take somewhere between 18 and 22 hours. And that's well-defined in the physiology textbooks. And all too often, people will have one or two challenges with that. The, the food will travel through faster than that, and they'll actually have malabsorption, and they'll have an issue with frequent diarrhea, or it'll go way too slow, and they'll absorb not only the food, but the toxins, right, the toxic waste product from the bacteria acting on it, and uh, that's constipation. And we look, and about half of our population suffers from 
one form or another of what they like to call irritable bowel, whether it's constipation-dominant or diarrhea-dominant, but poor digestion is uh, more common than it is uncommon. Yeah, how sad. I want to ask you a little bit about exercise. I mean, we're talking a lot about nutrition and, and you know, some lifestyle stuff. But, and exercise, you mentioned one of your magnificent seven is move right, and I think there's some different components to that, but, but part of it is certainly going to be exercise. I'm wondering how does someone know how hard to exercise? Let me follow that question with with a thought that I that I remember again. I you know as we're doing this talk, it's a lot of fun for me because I'm uh, I'm just remembering all these. I mean, literally hundreds of hours that I've been in seminars with with you talking. You know, so and I just you know they're always fun. You're such a dynamic speaker, but one, and I I just have all these tidbits that I remember. But one one story that I remember, you were talking about people exercising at different levels, right? So there's there's reasons to work out, you know, even if someone's super fit, there are sometimes reasons to work out uh, in a way that's not very taxing to the body, and then there's reasons that are good to work out very taxing to the body. Uh, for example, um, your insulin sensitivity is increased the most the more the, the harder that you work out, correct? Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's one of the things I really like to recommend for diabetic patients. So, literally, when you when you look at at exercise, muscles have receptors for glucose, and within them, there's a subtype of receptor. There are exercise responsive glucose receptors, GLUT4 receptors. So, when a muscle contracts, it will literally pull glucose into the cell independent of insulin. It's one of the best ways to lower blood sugar. The harder the muscle contracts, the more glucose is drawn in. So it can be really, really good. There's immune studies where they look at, uh, you know, they've done it with, with rats, and, and rats still have an immune system, but they'd give them the flu, for instance, and they'd let a very bad strain of the flu, and they'd let one group lay around on the couch, and they'd have another group do mild exercise, something like on a, on a treadmill. And another group they'd make run hard for a couple hours a day. Well, the, the rats that had mild exercise had the longest and best survivability from the flu. The rats that did nothing were second best, but those that did the really extreme hard exercise while they were sick uh, died in the highest numbers. And, and it wasn't a small difference. And it was something like, you know, 40% died that sat on the couch, 15% died that did mild exercise, and over 70% died that did extreme exercise. So that's pretty significant. And I also see with my athletes, when they start getting near a competition, a lot of times they get sick, and, and part of what we need to do is, is, of course, support their immune system and nutrients, but also let them know that you don't want to break your body down that far that you can't recover. And so we'd love for people to be able to listen to their bodies more effectively. Uh, I have a number of triathletes, and what they'll do is actually wake up in the morning and they will test their uh, resting pulse rate. And, you know, a triathlete may have a very low pulse rate. Let's say it's, you know, 42 beats a minute. And if they go out and they train a little bit hard, you know, the next day they wake up and, and their pulse rate's elevated, let's say 45 or 46 beats a minute. And they realize, okay, I overdid it. I need to take it easy. Um, and if they've done things right, it stays at their ideal rate or a little bit lower. So that's a good way to go about it. Um, I don't like people to get excessively sore. You know, sore is good. Sore means you've done something. Sore means you've activated some muscles that you hadn't done for a period of time. But excessively sore is, is not good. And I, I teach a, a Chinese philosophy when I teach sports nutrition. 
and that is, they say, to go beyond may be worse than to fall short. So it's uh, a pretty amazing thing to try to find that sweet spot. And realistically, we should get better, you know, not necessarily workout to workout, but certainly month to month. If you're on a good program, you should be able to improve your strength, your range of motion, your endurance pretty consistently. It may be just a small amount, but yet you should be able to do that. And so consistent progress is what we're going for without breaking ourselves down. Yeah, right. Okay, so there's a place for moderation, and uh, going hard is, is important, but also listening to your body. But one thing that I remember that, that you were talking about was you were you had a patient that, you can correct me if, if I get the details wrong, but it was something about she couldn't she couldn't get up. Like, I don't know if she was wheelchair-bound or, or what it was, but, but she came in, I believe, to your office, and you wanted her to exercise. You were talking about a whole host of things in her treatment plan, but one of them was lifestyle, one of them was exercise. And she said, well, I can't. You know, I'm, I'm, I have to sit here. That's all I can do. It's um, for whatever reason. Again, don't remember why. And you shared with the audience that you had her exercise. You were, you were adamant that, she, that it would help her uh, physiology if she would exercise. And so I believe what you ended up telling her was to contract all of her muscles as hard as she could while she was sitting there. And that was like exercise for her because that's where her body was. Can, can you speak to that? Do you, do you recall that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I absolutely remember that case very, very well. I, I have a video of this lady because it was such a remarkable turnaround. But it, it boiled down to that she was uh, about 65 years old. She was five foot five, 265 pounds. Uh, taken eight different medications, six for diabetes-related problems, uh, two for, for heart problems. And she was just plain miserable. And I told her to exercise 30 minutes a day. And it wasn't that she couldn't get up and go up and down. She said, you don't understand. I can't walk from here to the door. She literally couldn't walk from there to the door. She had to use a walker. Yeah. She was on oxygen. And um, I said, look, that's not what I'm asking you to do. And she said, what are you asking me to do? I said, I need you to squeeze your muscles, literally every muscle you own. And I can still, to this day, I wish I'd filmed her when she was squeezing her muscles. But we went through her whole body. I said, look, I want you to squeeze your hands. I want you to squeeze your elbows, squeeze your shoulders, squeeze your arms against your ribs, pull your your shoulders down and back, squeeze your butt cheeks, squeeze your thighs together, push your feet down on the floor, and just hold that as tight as you can. And what was so profound about that is she was uh, on multiple diabetic medications and could not get her sugars below 150. Well, the next day, she woke up and her sugar was 99, and that's the lowest she had had. And literally, <laughs> the uh, next day, the next day, when you, when you look at her video, um, she says, yeah, I've been exercising in two- and three-minute segments because that's all she could do. Now, if we fast forward the clock, it was literally, you know, eight months later, she was down to zero medications, she was over 50 pounds lighter, she had perfect blood sugar, perfect blood pressure, perfect cholesterol, all the things that you look for. It was just a matter of getting her to move her body, putting good things in, and yes, we, we did give her supplementation as well. So, um, use it or lose it is a real phenomenon. If, you, if people have this mindset, I can't move, you know, you know what, you're, you're gonna sadly really manifest that to the extreme point, which is no movement, which is death. And we have to move. Life is motion. Uh, I just, um, you know, I'm, I'm always touched by, uh, you, you have a very kind and, and caring soul in my, you know, in my experience. 
and it's great, you know, because you're you're a, you're a doctor, a teacher, a healer, and uh, that's great for your patients. At the same time, you sort of have this, I, I don't know if I'm going to name it right, but kind of this, like, I'm not going to take any shit kind of attitude in a way. Um, you know, pardon my language there, but it's sort of like, um, no, no, I can't exercise. You can, you could choose to buy their story that they can't exercise, but instead you care enough to say, no, you can exercise, and you find a way. Um, you know, and that's with exercise, that's with, I think, a lot of things. So I want to say thanks, and do you have anything to comment about that? You know what I do, and there's so many different things, and thank you for the wonderful compliments, and, and I've always appreciated your great energy and, and your total commitment to health and wellness and your patients and our world, and that's what this is all about. But, you know, my mentors tell me you can either make excuses or you can make progress. Which one do you want to make? And and, and we want people to make progress, and, and sometimes when we call them out on it, you know, listen, you don't know what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to run a marathon. I'm not asking you to do it a real intensive spin class, but I am asking you to move your body, fully honoring that you have limitations at this point in time. So let's do what we can. Let's do it to the best of our ability, and let's always try to get better. And you will be surprised at how much faster people can improve uh, they they have a block where they think, you know, exercise is something vigorous. They have to go to the gym. They have to lift heavy weights. They have to run a certain distance or a certain speed. No, they don't. They need to move their body pain-free as best as they can, honoring where they're at, but always, always, always trying to get better. And so when I'll teach, there a lot of doctors will, all over the world, I'll talk about the programs I put patients on, and they'll say something like, well, my patients won't do that. And my comment is, send them to me, you know, because they will. We don't want to be the weak link in our patient's program. We want to actually be the strength that moves them to the next level. So one of my favorite definitions of a coach is one that gets you to do what you don't want to do so that you can really become something that you really want to be. And, you know, if people, if patients had all the answers, they wouldn't be in our office and the amazing thing is the answers aren't complicated. They're very, very straightforward. And we've already been through them, right? Eat right, drink right, think right, move right, sleep right, poop right, talk right, and get on some good supplementation, and you're going to be there. You're going to definitely make progress. That's awesome. Say, you mentioned coaching, and I don't know where you stand on this. That's why we're doing the interview, partly. I'm curious. You know, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, just since I've been in practice, I've been in practice since 2004, so at the time of this recording, uh, that's a little over 10 years. I feel like just in that amount of time, I've seen a lot, like more and more health coaches and life coaches and, and people like this. And there's various levels of like certifications and, and some people are just saying, hey, I'm a health coach, right? There's no professional board or monitoring that or anything. And honestly, that it concerns me a little bit or maybe more than a little bit, if I'm being honest. I, I think that there's some of those people that aren't licensed that uh, are very knowledgeable and are doing a ton of good. I don't want to condemn everybody or anything like that, but um, I'm curious what your take is on that. I'm going to boil the question down. Um, what do you think about a uh, health coach versus uh, a licensed functional medicine doctor giving, giving nutritional advice, for example? 
Well, if they're really specialized in functional medicine, then, then there's, it's really hard to beat that level of expertise because they're up with the latest and greatest science. They're up with the latest and greatest supplementation. And they know how to safely move bodies in the right direction. So the first rule always has to be first do no harm. And, and see, that's one of the interesting things about the, the field of nutrition because it's pretty hard to hurt somebody with nutrition. When I teach my courses on nutrition, the poison control database is very, very clear. 60 billion doses of nutraceuticals per year and not a single death. And you contrast that to even food poisoning. We have 5,000 people every year that die in the United States from food poisoning. So supplements are incredibly healthy. But my favorite type of health coach is someone who's incredibly passionate about what they do, someone who's great to share what they know, but someone who knows the limitations of what they're offering. And, and these can be phenomenal allies. You know, so for instance, I don't know uh, how much of your time you spend teaching patients how to exercise. Um, for me, it's not cost effective. You know, my, my, my time with patients would be spent on, on things that maybe only I can do, but yet there's a number of great trainers that I consistently refer people out to. In fact, we even have a partnership now with a health club here called ExecuFit in Houston, Texas, and they've got super high-quality trainers, and, and literally they encourage their people to come into us for that great functional medicine workup, and we send them right back for great training. And, and it's a wonderful and synergistic partnership. So I understand where you're coming from, from that. We don't want people hanging up a shingle and, and saying, hey, I can do this and that, when they really don't have any qualifications for it. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of certification. So for years, I, I've, I've taught some high-level trainers. Uh, there's uh, a trainer named Charles Palquin, who I believe has trained about 15,000 trainers around the world. And I'll lecture to, to his uh, trainers about sports nutrition. And I'm very impressed with the high level of knowledge, dedication, health, fitness, you walk into that room and you see everybody there fit, everybody's drinking water, everybody's eating good food choices. And I hate to say it, I've lectured at major international medicine conferences and two-thirds of the room is overweight and obese and, and drinking Diet Coke, you know. So somewhere along the line, I, I think we need to have graduated certifications that make sense. Um, I would like people to, to have a, you know, an overall governing body. We're not there yet. But the, it's always going to be the case of buyer beware. You know, go to somebody and say, you know, I would like your advice on this. And if they start stepping out the bounds, the, the consumer has to be savvy enough to say, well, tell me, what's your background in that? How do you know that that's going to be good for me? How do you know that's not going to harm me, et cetera? And, and they have to be savvy. And the, the beautiful thing is when you start looking at alternative medicine, which nutrition is in, we know that the people that pursue alternative medicine have uh, above-average education, above-average income, and therefore can probably make a better decision. So whereas I agree with, agree with you that there's people that are giving terrible advice, there's also people that are fitting a real nice niche that, frankly, you or I don't really have the time, nor would it be cost-effective for us to participate like that. So that was a, a very long answer, but good and bad in that field, as there is in every, every one of them. Great, thanks. So... That was health coach versus functional medicine doc. What about functional medicine practitioner versus medical doctor? When do you when does somebody know who to go to, who to ask advice for? Yeah, so uh, kind of a fine line, right? So you look at what functional medicine does, and it, it really moves people to a higher level. 
And if you look at what medicine does, it tries to stop them from dropping into a life-threatening level. So, you know, first do no harm goes right out the window when you start talking about drugs because every drug has a harm in the system. Um, so if someone has, for instance, a life-threatening circumstance or something that could spiral out of control and create great danger for them, in the short term, then, then medicine's probably the place for them. You know, I've, I've had people literally show up in my office just pale as can be, and, and I'll talk to them and they'll say, yeah, I was throwing up blood all night. It's like, you know what, you're in the wrong office. <laughs> get, get down the street to the emergency room. I've had people come in <laughs> clutching their chest and, and radiating pain, uh, you know, into the left arm. And, and guess what? I don't even call 911. I throw them in my car and I drive to the ER. And, and I've done that only once in, in 23 years, but it gets your attention. You know, we're very, right. very thankful for those wonderful medical people when it comes to these threatening circumstances. But we also know that right now the number is this, 86 cents of every dollar is spent on chronic disease. And medicine doesn't have a cure for chronic disease. And the sad reality is the way they manage it, these people get worse and worse and worse and cost more and more and more. And the healthy life expectancy in the U.S. is 68 years, whereas the life expectancy is 78.1. So we spend more than a decade, the average American, with chronic illness, taking multiple medications, which is essentially bankrupting our economy. So if someone wants to be better, they need a functional medicine doctor. If someone is afraid of dying, they need a medical doctor. If they have a circumstance, that could lead them in that direction. And most good functional medicine doctors, I think, would say, you know what, you need both at this point in time. But there's a clear distinction. Even, th even though we want the best for people, medicine wants to keep them from dying. We want to move them to a better level. When it, when it needs to mix, it can. And uh, when people are good enough to not need medications, then medications won't move them forward. But diet, exercise, and nutrition therapies will. Gotcha. Very cool. hope I don't stump you on this one because it might be kind of nebulous. But can you define ideal health? And so how would somebody know if they're in optimal health? You know, when, when I... Uh, talk to people about optimal health, I tell it's this, it's this fictitious point that we don't get to. I let them know right. that I've dissected about 12, 12 cadavers, and, and so I've seen the dead end of it, but I've never seen optimally healthy. And that even goes with people that have won Olympic gold and multiple world championships. But I like to define health as literally having the energy, the vitality, the body composition to do whatever you want uh, to absolutely make the most of your life. I want you pain-free. I want you energetic. I want you able to take on all the activities that make you happy. I want you to fall asleep shortly after your head hits the pillow, sleep deep through the night, wake up, you know, uh, actually not crave any bad food choices, but crave natural, wholesome foods, have good regular bowel movements, you know, one minimum, but preferably two or three each day, enough energy to get a couple good hours of good movement. And, and literally, if someone said, hey, let, let's go on a, you know, 20-mile hike, you could do it or play with your grandkids if you're of that age for a couple hours, or, or go play basketball for an hour, or whatever sport makes you happiest. But you've got to be able to have the vitality, the energy, the wherewithal, and the fitness to do whatever you want to do, you know, certainly age-appropriate. So, um, you know, one of my favorite pictures on the Internet, anybody can Google Yoga Granny. And I show a picture of her doing this peacock pose where she's literally balancing on two hands, and her arms are almost in a reverse push-up position, and her whole body's off the ground, so she's able to hold this super strong position. 
And, and I'll have very fit people in that audience, and I'll ask, how many people in this audience can do that right here, right now? And she's 83 years old, and, you know, uh, there's, there's never more than a few people in the audience that can do it, no matter how fit the audience is. Now, we've had a 100-year-old man as the oldest to complete an official marathon. We've had a 76-year-old man climb, climb, uh, climb Mount Everest. I have a friend in, in Sweden, Peter Wilhelmsson, sick for his 60th birthday. He did four different physical events, a 90-kilometer ski, a five-mile uh, five swim, or maybe it was a 5K swim, uh, a marathon, an official marathon, and uh, I think a 300-kilometer bike ride. Not all in the same day, but literally all in different seasons. And he said, I just want people to know that life doesn't have to end at 60. And, and, you know, he felt great through the whole process. And he's right. It doesn't have to end at 60 or 70 or 80. We can have vitality right up to near the very end. You know, Jack LaLanne passed. I think he was 96 years old. But, you know, in his 96th year, he was still training two hours a day and loving life. And I think that's what's possible for all of us if we if we have the right strategy. So... Optimal health is being able to do whatever you want to do regardless of age. You know, have, have the vitality and, and fitness and pain-free life to be able to do it. That's awesome. And what speaks to me is also an attitude of not getting there. You know, Jack LaLanne, you mentioned at 76, he's still training two hours a day. I don't know this, but hypothetically, let's say he let's say he worked out for a couple hours the day before he died. Uh, I'm guessing if if we asked him on his deathbed minutes before he passed, hey, did you waste that two hours yesterday because because you're dying today anyways? Like maybe you could have just been like having a milkshake or you know doing something else. And I bet he would say it wasn't a waste. Because it's the it, the joy of of health or op, whether we say optimal health or maintaining health or however we want to say it, it's the joys in the journey. So we never get there, and I, I think the the healthiest people display that attitude. Is that something you've seen? Yeah, and and you just really hit on something that I, I would like everybody to get. And so Dean Ornish is a great functional medicine doctor. I uh, was interviewed by CNN a couple of years ago, and they literally did a study where they took people and they collaborated with uh, the National Institutes of Health, and they could actually mark the level of, of aging in these uh, individuals' bodies. And when they put them on a good program, which consisted of good diet, good exercise, meditation, and stress management, at three months they, they showed that essentially everybody was able to turn back their biologic clock. They got younger in the process and their skin was better, and their body composition was better, and their aerobic capacity was better. And so the interviewer asked a pretty interesting question. She said, well, Dr. Warnish, if these changes are so easy, why aren't more people doing them? And, you know, he said something interesting. He said, we have a lot of false choices. We think, am I going to live longer, or is it just going to feel longer? And he said, sustainable changes must be pleasurable. So people have to find that activity that they really, really enjoy. Uh, Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he said, you know, look, if you're running 10 miles a day to live 10 years longer, you probably need to understand that you've spent those entire 10 years running. So you better really enjoy it. Now, I know <laughs> that Jack LaLanne did enjoy training. Uh, I know that my training has evolved over the years, but 
you know, I absolutely enjoy the activity, the competition, the training, and the feeling that you get from really exerting your body. And I, I think most people can get to that point, but as you mentioned earlier on, uh, exertion is all relative. So for Pat, sitting in a chair squeezing her muscles uh, was, was what she could do, but she saw the benefits literally within a day. So if we can find what we love, whether it's vocation or exercise, you know, and do it, then we're going to have a much better existence. One of your, uh, one of the magnificent sevens again is, is think right. That's correct, right? Yes. Yes, think right. And so as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking, um, you know, it sounds like, uh, you were maybe sort of one of the lucky ones, so to speak, that you kind of enjoy exercise. And uh, I happen to be one of those people, too. I just, I've always enjoyed uh, just using my body, moving, being physical. That that stuff has always come naturally to me, and I, I just enjoy it. I don't have to work at, at that. Um, I do have, I do talk to patients that, that just say they hate exercise or they won't exercise, things like that. And... You know, I think with exercise and with with eating a certain diet, let's say like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna cut out sugar, or we're gonna cut out gluten, or we're gonna do whatever. We're gonna make sure you're getting enough protein because you haven't been eating any protein. Whatever thing it is, I mean, any anything in your life, it's the think right thing. It's partly it's let's find what you enjoy. So. Maybe the only exercise they've ever done is running, so they, they, they think of exercise, they hear exercise, they think of running. So they think, I hate running, so I hate exercise. But if they would go play volleyball, oh, volleyball is, is exercise? Wow, that's great. I, I love exercise now. So, so part of it is finding it, but part of it too, I think, is, is thinking right. Part of it is finding the joy in the things that we need to do. Um, do you have a thought about that? Yeah, I, you know, I think you're exactly right. And, and you know, as, as being a student of health and wellness and longevity, one of the things we know is that optimists live longer. That's uh, basically mm. indisputable. Numerous studies that show that. They have a better immune system. A lot of things go on. So you've got to look for the good in everything. And you have to look for joy. So like you said, Find an activity that you like, certainly not something that you dread. You know, if you have a significant other in your life, uh, one of my favorite things is, is take the dogs for a walk with, with my wife. Now, do I consider that vigorous activity? No, but we're in nature, we're connecting, we talk, it's fun to have these wonderful animals with us, and, you know, exercise count as exercise. It absolutely does. So it doesn't have to be anything vigorous, and if you're not finding something that you find joy in, I think you need to look a little further. You know, I, I can still remember when my, ki- my kids were born, and we'd go to these little play areas, and I would, I would crawl in these little tubes with them. Well, now my kids are 21, 18, and 16. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 all the, the time, same thing. <laughs> of all the times I crawled in the tubes with these kids, you know, I only remember seeing one other parent crawling in the tubes with these kids. And guess what? It was a, a, another chiropractor that eventually came to work in my office. So, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating, you know. But I, I, sadly, parents have their kids and, okay, kids go play rather than let's go play. Let's have some fun with this because, oh, there's such a great joy. And there, there, it's even more joy if you can literally get on their level and, and share everything with them. 
That is beautiful. All right, we are uh, we are definitely up on our time limit here. So one last question: What is your top health tip? You know, it's gotta it's gotta be love, Chris. It's gotta be love. You know, I, I like to Thanks. quote Agnandino, <laughs> and and you've got to love yourself. He he has a long dissertation on love, but in the end, he says that most of all, I will love myself. For when I do, I will zealously inspect all things that I allow to enter my mind my heart, my soul, and my body. And that's what it is. You've got to love yourself enough to put all good things in and share all good things with everybody, and our whole world will be better. That's my number one tip. Mm. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Bob Rakowski. Uh, this has been a huge pleasure and an honor for me. That I think a lot of people are going to find a lot of value in here. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me as your guest. Visit drchrisfrickman.com for more cutting-edge content, including nutrition and detoxification advice, unique fitness videos, and more.